It's August 1695 in India. Off the tropical west coast, two Mughal merchant ships, the Fat Mahamadi and the Ganji Sawe, slowly limp into the port in Surat, located at the mouth of the Tapti River. Despite the sweltering heat and heavy monsoon rain, the docks and factories are bustling with trade, and numerous ships are being loaded and unloaded. Aboard these two crippled vessels, the people are relieved to be home after their devastating encounter with Henry Avery. Quickly, the two ships grab the attention of sailors, merchants, and travelers in the port. They're horrified to see the Ganji Sawe, the Mughal Emperor's own ship, with its splintered hull and torn rigging, so badly scarred from battle. They were on a peaceful trip, returning from the Hajj, the annual pilgrimage to Mecca. Yet they look like they've been through hell, and worse. The question on everyone's lips, what has happened? As the ashen-faced Mughal sailors, soldiers, and pilgrims disembark, the port is a flurry of gossip, as word quickly spreads. English pirates are responsible. As word filters through the population, anger and hostility quickly grow towards the local English traders, employees of the East India Company, who many hold personally responsible. The English officials at the port are thrown into a panic. Letters are sent to their London head office, warning that this is likely to cause trouble for them and their trade relationship. And they are right. Word of what's happened is rushed to the Mughal Emperor. In Aurangabad, at the palace, the messenger tells the Mughal Emperor of the devastating attack carried out by the pirate ships. The Emperor's eyes burn with wrath. He views this attack as sacrilegious, not just an attack on his people, but an attack on the Muslim faith. And it gets worse. The Emperor is thrown into a fit of rage when he learns how many the pirates killed and how much they stole, but also the pirates sexually assaulted and abused the women, including the elderly wife of one of his courtiers. Henry Avery's attack is more than just another annoying attack by English pirates, a trend the Mughal ruler wants the English to put a stop to. But Avery's assault crosses the line. It is the most vicious and personal attack of them all. The Emperor knows that the English government and the East India Company will not act against these pirates unless he takes action against them. He orders the East India Company to be seized, since the English refuse to rid the waters of these pirates, then the Emperor will rid these waters of the East India Company. I'm Tom Morton, and welcome to Real Pirates, the show that dives deep into the true story behind the world's most notorious buccaneers. Join us as we set sail under the black flag, alongside such legendary figures as Blackbeard, Henry Morgan, Charles Vane, Anne Bonny, and Mary Reed. 
we'll reveal how these marauding mariners rose to dominate the seven seas, the terror tactics they employed to overpower their prey, and what life was really like aboard their ships. Their reputations have swollen to legendary proportions, making it hard to separate fact from fiction. Who were they? Terrorists or freedom fighters? Cold-blooded killers or heroic underdogs? As it turns out, the truth is far stranger than fiction. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com socks. At Ikea, your dream home is a blue bag away. No matter the size of your space or budget, we've got everything you need to turn your dreams into reality. And now with new lower prices on hundreds of our most popular products, bringing the dream home is even easier. Like the gray Strandom wing chair, was $369, now $299. And the IKEA Plus 365 nine-piece cookware set was $129.99, now $89.99. And hundreds more. Shop new lower prices at ikea-usa.com today. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. In the wake of Avery's plundering of the Mughal fleet, he has scored a staggering £150,000 worth of treasure. About £17 million in today's money. He has truly found his fortune, just as he said he would. But at what cost? The wake of devastation in his path is heinous. Avery has destroyed ships and towns. He savagely abducted tribespeople across Africa and sold them into the slave trade. And he's allowed his crew to abuse and murder Mughal men and women with abandon. Avery's actions are going to trigger severe consequences, not just for him, but also for the East India Company in the coming months. Consequences that would have repercussions on the entire maritime world. But for now, Avery has his treasure. It's October 1695. Anchored off the tropical island of Reunion, just 340 miles from Madagascar, are Avery's flagship The Fancy, The Portsmouth Adventure, and The Pearl. For the pirates, this is the perfect place to stop and rest. The French-claimed island is lush with vegetation and sandy beaches. It is a little paradise. One can imagine the pirates drinking copious bottles of wine, celebrating their recent score. If there were any celebrations, it is kept to a minimum. Avery knows that distance must be put between him and the Mughal emperor to avoid the inevitable wrath should they stay in the Indian Ocean. 
Avery wants to divvy up the booty and get out. Dividing the plunder, each man is rewarded with a thousand pounds. It's a huge payday, equal to twenty years of wages. Dr. Rebecca Simon is a historian and author of Pirate Queens, The Lives of Anne Bonny and Mary Reed. The plunder from the Ganji Sawai was probably one of the greatest pirate hauls in history. In fact, some could argue that Henry Avery became the wealthiest pirate in history thanks to this, because in total, they got about 600,000 pounds worth of goods and golds and jewels. And that is equivalent to well over 200, 300 million pounds in today's currency. Now, here's the thing, though, because Avery's crew was so large, each pirate only got about a thousand pounds. Uh, in terms of their own equal share. And that would still be equivalent of well over 100,000 pounds today, which would allow them to live a pretty comfortable life. Avery being captain got double that. He got about 2,000 pounds from the Ganji Sawai, which again would give him a few hundred thousand dollars. So while technically, even in the standards back in the 17th, 18th centuries, that would not make him the richest person on earth, but he would be able to retire in a lot of really great luxury for the rest of his life. The pirates are now flush with their newly stolen wealth. The Portsmouth Adventure and the Pearl part ways with the fancy. Avery isn't staying in the Indian Ocean. It's too dangerous. But he knows exactly where to go. The Caribbean. Avery plots a course for Nassau, an English colony on the island of New Providence. Dr. James Rankin is a historian and an authority on pirates. So the Bahamas was a proprietary colony, which is particularly concerning because it seemed to be a place where the interests of London were not particularly well represented and where the interests of local concerns tended to predominate. And those local concerns often included working with or turning a blind eye to pirates. These colonies, to some extent, were places that pirates had, particularly in the 1680s and 1690s, done a fair bit of trade. So economically speaking, pirates were extremely advantageous for colonial merchants who were effectively at the periphery of this massive, you know, trade empire whose beating heart is London, but whose main arteries in fact run to the east and to the southwest, to the West Indies. And I think Avery heads to the Bahamas for a very understandable reasons that he has a reasonable expectation that he will probably be able to offload cargo there and turn that into money. It's April 1696. The fancy cuts through the crystal blue waters of the Caribbean en route to Nassau. Avery walks the deck, considering how he'll bribe the governor. The answer is simple. Avery plans to downsize. He no longer needs this warship. Despite the vessel's damage, sustained from attacks and harsh ocean weather, Avery knows it is a tantalizing bargaining chip. Avery also knows the Nine Years' War has devastated trade throughout the colonies, especially in underdefended, cash-starved places like Nassau. The East India Company maintained a monopoly on so many of the goods that came from India. So spices, silks, things like that were very hard to get. 
And because the East India Company has a monopoly, ironically, they are creating a very powerful incentive for privateers like Avery to steal those things and sell them at a premium to colonial merchants. So pirates were extremely important economically as a source of rare goods and in particular hard cash. These are cash-starved economies. Now, all of these dynamics really get kicked into overdrive when the Nine Years War kicks off because places that are in the colonial periphery are obviously going to suffer from a huge depression in trade when war breaks out. So French privateers operating off the western coast of France, capturing English vessels, they are making merchants much less keen to ship things to and from the colonies. So a privateer who arrives with a suspiciously rich cargo may not have quite so many difficulties offloading that. Dropping anchor outside the harbor of Nassau, Avery pens a note to Governor Nicholas Trott, requesting permission to enter. But Avery gives himself the alias Benjamin Bridgman. While it's unlikely that word of his attack on the Mughals has reached the Bahamas, Avery's goal is to avoid any suspicion of who he really is. Remaining aboard the fancy, Avery sends men ashore to deliver his message to Trot. The arrival of sunburnt pirates with dirty faces, ragged clothes, and no doubt a fierce body odor must be quite a sight to Governor Trot. But it's also easy to imagine the sight of a brilliant gold coin and the promise of more opens the doors to his well-furnished office. One of the callous-handed pirates gives Trot Avery's letter. In order to persuade Trot, Avery writes that he will surrender the fancy to him, along with her cannons. As a sweetener, the crew will also pay Trot 20 pieces of eight and two pieces of gold each. Nicholas Trott most likely knew that Henry Avery and his men were pirates. They're coming in with a very large former slaving ship. They're coming in with loads of money, loads of good, and a huge amount of enslaved people there. And who could be wanting to come in and unload this amount of goods except for other pirates? So Henry Avery knew that in order to have the governor's cooperation, they were going to have to bribe him pretty well. There was a lot of good incentive for Governor Nicholas Trott to take in these goods that Avery's offloading. Having the ship, the fancy at his disposal would be a humongous help because it was a warship. It had about 46 guns and it would allow Trott to be able to defend the struggling colony because they were under constant threats of attack, especially from the French. And so this would be kind of the first real piece of defense he could also have. Also, if he allowed the pirates to stay, Nassau's population would triple overnight and you could have an entire massive group of people who would be able to defend it in case there were any attacks. Even if only a tiny amount of them ended up staying, that would still be enough manpower to effectively defend the island of Providence. Trot agrees. The fancy enters the harbor and the pirates disembark. They begin drinking and making merry in the taverns. And Trot, now in possession of a warship, is all too happy to accept them. It's a good deal, benefiting both parties. But it won't be long before the world knows that Nassau's doors are wide open to entertaining piracy. Meanwhile, Avery's attack on the Mughal fleet 
is creating problems for the East India Company. In Surat, the arrival of the plundered Fat Mahamadi and the Ganji Sawe has sparked outrage. The people are calling for blood. There is chaos outside the East India Company factory. Rioters surround the building. Fists pound on the doors. A rock shatters one of the windows. The English employees know that if the locals break through, they will have to fight for their lives. They blockade the doors, bolting them shut. The angry mobs see no distinction between Avery and the Englishmen of the East India Company. They are all to blame. Mughal soldiers arrive. Warning shots are fired, pushing the rioters back. The soldiers create a barrier between the raging crowd and the vulnerable English, locked inside the factory. But the soldiers are not there to protect the English. They're there to imprison them. Any company workers not inside the compound are being rounded up. Several Indian soldiers escort a fearful-looking Englishman towards the factory to be locked up with his fellow countrymen. The soldiers push and manhandle him through the angry crowd, who spit and throw stones. One can only imagine this man's terror as he is being strong-armed and observing the hateful eyes of the locals on him. The soldiers order the people to stay back. But they don't listen. They push in. The mob rush the soldiers, seizing their captive. They fall on the Englishman in a flurry of fists and feet. He is beaten to a bloody pulp and left near dead in the street. Three days from now, this man will die of his injuries. It doesn't matter that the East India Company has nothing to do with Avery's attack. They feel the full brunt of fury. In London, news of the incident in Surat is shocking. And whilst the deaths and injuries are sad, Avery's attack has other, potentially devastating effects. The East India Company headquarters have been informed that the Mughal Emperor has seized their offices and assets. The very real threat of losing their trade deal is unthinkable. Their main priority is appeasing the Mughals, not resolving the hostage situation. When the East India Company workers were taken hostage in Surat, this was another huge blow to the English because they were already stretched really thin. They were already having problems in that many of their merchants who were in India while all this were going on were very sick from catching various diseases that they had no immunity towards. So they're trying to deal with this. They're trying to deal with the really angry emperor. They're working on trying to make sure the East India Company's authority isn't being challenged, and now they're being hit from all sides here. Not only this, on top of that, there's more Red Sea pirates out there who are still being a menace to all other aspects of the East India Company. So when the East India Company workers are taken hostage, the English pretty much have no choice but to do exactly what the emperor wants. Hey, welcome to Ikea, where even this desk is circular. Huh, how so? Looks pretty rectangular to me. 
It's because we're always looking to repair, reuse, and we love our products, like buying back your IKEA items for store credit. Or shop our as-is section for great deals. You can even order free spare parts. Get on the circular path for a more sustainable future. Still a rectangle. Get started at ikea-usa.com slash circular. Visit ikea-usa.com slash circular for as-is information and buyback and resale terms and conditions. Spare parts not available for all products. At Outback Steakhouse, your wish is our command. Backed by popular demand, steak and lobster at a special price starting at $19.99. Come enjoy our bold center-cut sirloin seasoned with our signature blend of 17 spices and paired with a buttery, succulent lobster tail. Hurry into Outback Steakhouse where your steak and lobster wishes come true at a price you can't miss. Steak and lobster starting at $19.99. No rules, just right. The Mughal Emperor's demand is simple. He has had enough of English pirates. If trade is to resume, he wants Avery captured and brought to justice, and an end to piracy in the Indian Ocean. The English issue a royal proclamation that officially declares that Henry Avery and all of his men were hostis humanis generis, or enemies of all mankind. The East India Company immediately offered up an award of 500 pounds and a free pardon to anyone, including pirates, who would capture Avery. And soon they actually ended up increasing this to a thousand pounds, so hundreds of thousands of pounds in today's currency. They also promised that Henry Avery was going to be exempt from all acts of grace, meaning any type of pardon that had generally been issued for pirates, those who came forward. So for example, if Henry Avery decided to turn himself in, he would not be pardoned. He was going to be punished no matter what. Avery is now an enemy of the state. His efforts to show mercy on English vessels have not benefited him. Is it possible Avery might never have attacked the Mughal Emperor's ship had he realized who it belonged to? It's difficult to gauge what Avery's decision would have been because it's a little bit hard to get a sense of his political acumen. We know that he must have had some sense that his activities in the Red Sea were disruptive to the interests of the East India Company, but he was also someone who very deliberately invoked this older tradition of confronting a traditional religious enemy and justifying aggressions at sea against Muslim shipping as part of a, a longer sort of tradition that English particularly English mariners, were very familiar with. So having said all of that, I think that even Avery would have thought twice about attacking a vessel that belonged directly to the emperor. But we can't be certain. Avery might have known full well what he was doing when he attacked the Ganji Sawe. Even if Henry Avery knew that this was the emperor's ship, it probably wouldn't have mattered because to Avery, this was a really, really large haul he could get that would make him and his entire fleet wealthy for the rest of their lives. And plus, he had promised the English that he wouldn't attack any English ships. And this definitely was not an English ship. This was something that was going to set up him and the rest of his pirates up for life and make him the most powerful pirate in the world. The proclamation for Avery's arrest triggers the first global manhunt in human history. It's May 1696. Henry Avery and his crew have spent their time in Nassau blissfully unaware of the colossal fallout of their actions, or of public notices being distributed 
naming them as international criminals. No doubt they are still unaware when the pirate band begins to disperse. Some have already left Nassau. In April, 23 of Avery's men bought a sloop named the Isaac and set off for England to restart their lives. Another batch of 50 men sailed the 400-mile journey to Charleston, Carolina, to begin anew. With so many of Avery's crew setting off, he too is eager to return home. So Avery purchases a modest 50-ton sloop, armed with four small cannons, named the Sea Flower. Sailing with 20 others, he leaves Nassau, and it seems he does so at just the right time. Shortly after Avery's departure, a passing vessel spots a beached ship on Hog Island, not far from Nassau. It's the Fancy. Back in June, after disassembling the Fancy and selling off her fittings, Trot decided the ship was in too poor of a condition to salvage. So he ran it aground, essentially leaving an X marks the spot right on his own doorstep. The mariners recognized the Fancy as the now infamous pirate ship talked about the world over. The discovery creates complications for Trot. Suspicious eyes fall on him for assisting Avery. Though Trot claims he only knew Avery under the alias Bridgman. Even though Governor Trot most likely knew that they were pirates and chose to deal with them anyways, he most likely did not realize that there was a huge manhunt going on for Henry Avery. And that's because at the time, Avery actually arrived in the Bahamas about three months before the official proclamation had been issued. While Trot may not have known he was dealing with Henry Avery, his collusion with these pirates will eventually cost him his governorship. And as rumors and legends grow, he has also paved the way for Nassau to one day become the home of the Pirates of the Caribbean. It's the end of June 1696. Avery breathes a sigh of relief. From the deck of the Sea Flower, he surveys the verdant green cliffs and white sands along the coast of Ireland. He lands at Dunfernaghy, County Donegal. But Avery has one last hurdle to overcome in order to slip back into society. The customs official. As he dealt with Governor Trot, Avery and his men bribed the customs official. Each man pays three pounds in gold. This buys them all passes to travel to Dublin. But where Avery goes is shrouded in mystery. Upon arriving in Ireland, Avery parts with his crew, claiming he'll go to Scotland before returning to Devon. It's July 1696. It's over a year since Avery attacked the Mughals, and they have since released their hostages and allowed the factory in Surat to open and re-establish trade. Although Avery has returned to England amidst the global manhunt, no one can find him. But the same cannot be said for some of his former crew members. In Rochester, a small village in Kent, one of Avery's crewmen named John Dan has taken lodging in a boarding house. It's a warm summer day, 
and Dan has decided to go for a walk along the River Medway. While he's away, the maid starts tidying his room. She picks up his quilted jacket from the bed with the idea to hang it in the closet. But something is off. Noticing the weight of the coat and the metallic jangle inside, the maid inspects the pockets. They're empty. The lodger, she realizes, has sewn something inside the material. Cutting the jacket open, dozens of brilliant gold coins spill across the floor. She picks one up, holding it to the light, marveling at the strange exotic design. She has discovered over a thousand pounds in Arabian gold coins stashed in the lining. Knowing of the manhunt for Avery and his men, the maid rushes to the authorities, though how many of the coins are handed in is uncertain. That night, when John Dan returns to the boarding house, he's met with a surprise. The authorities are there to greet him. They immediately clap him in irons. Dan is thrown in prison with a handful of other Avery pirates who've fallen to similar fates. They are all eventually hanged. But these are the unlucky few. Only a handful of Avery's crews are captured and hanged. The manhunt is producing poor results, and Avery himself continues to evade capture. So there is a manhunt, but it is a little bit ramshackle. I think that there was a fair degree of commitment to trying to find Avery, but practically speaking, there wasn't necessarily the kind of organizational apparatus to effectively carry that out. So the manhunt against Henry Avery fails, and ultimately England and the East India Company are basically just going to kind of wash their hand of this failure. To them, they did what they needed to do. They issued proclamations going against Henry Avery. They declared Avery and his men to be enemies of all mankind. They sent these proclamations to the West Indies and to North America. They offered rewards and they did end up managing to capture several of them. And they ultimately tried and executed six pirates. To them, they had done pretty much enough. While six members of Avery's crew are brought to justice, Avery is not. He has slipped through the authorities' net and is never found, leaving only speculation and a growing legend behind him. He disappears. He is the D.B. Cooper of the 17th century. We don't know anything about D.B. Cooper, but no one wants to tell a story about D.B. Cooper where he leaps out of a plane and falls to his death, which is probably the most likely story. Everyone wants to tell a story where D.B. Cooper leaps out of the plane safely lands and then goes on to become you know, Jeff Bezos or something. There has to be like a, uh, that legend has to have a satisfying conclusion. Um, so in the sense that Avery disappears from the record, he did an immense service to storytellers. He left an absence into which any ending could be put. And that is just, that's gold in terms of, <laughs> of a legend. A few years after Avery's disappearance, his legend and fame begin to blossom in ways no other pirate of the Golden Age will achieve. Henry Avery, deemed the King of Pirates, is the rogue who scored big and got away. 
Of course, we have had pirates that were infamous at this time that were known from history, such as Grace O'Malley from 16th century Ireland. But in terms of celebratory ballads and plays and books like this, kind of taking the history and chalking it up into almost a novel sensation, that was pretty unheard of when it came to pirates at this time. And it's Henry Avery, his story that's going to kind of start catapulting this idea of taking the historic pirate and turning it into kind of a legendary figure that's going to be popular amongst audiences. So after Henry Avery's exploits, people began to give him kind of like a bit of a mythological quality about him. He was sort of seen as a Robin Hood-esque figure. The idea being that he was this pirate or he was this captain that fought against terrible and evil captains who refused to pay out the rest of the crew. And he was the one that rescued his crew with the mutiny to make sure they would all get paid really, really evenly. So he was kind of seen as almost heroic in this sense. Kind of became this legendary sort of great pirate, partly thanks to a, a book that was published in 1709 called The Life and Adventures of Captain John Avery, the famous English pirate now in possession of Madagascar. By 1709, this popular work of fiction has subverted the reality of the brutal attack on the Ganges Sawe. Across the English-speaking world, the story takes a romantic twist. Avery is said to have found something more pleasing than jewels. The popular story goes that when he raids the Mughal ship, Avery meets the Emperor's daughter en route to her wedding. She never makes it to her groom. Instead, she marries Avery on the spot, and the newlyweds sail off to Madagascar to live richly and happily ever after. For many young sailors, the escape of Avery with his hordes of riches and his pirate kingdom and princess wife becomes a fantasy many are desperate to achieve, motivating countless others to follow in his footsteps. For the general public, it seems the horrific reality of Avery's actions are either unremarkable or inconvenient to the new mythology that is on the rise. Whether the legend that he marries this Magal princess is a convenient way to sort of just deflect from or even cover up the reality of the brutality that actually unfolded under Avery's command. And I think that obviously part of myth-making is reconciling an historical figure to a set of expectations and beliefs around what is befitting of a legendary patriot. So you couldn't really have Avery as a legend and also as someone who had presided over, even if it was against enemies. What everyone would agree was pretty reprehensible behavior. Part of the reason why so many of the legends include this myth that he ultimately marries the Mughal princess is because that is one way to, to effectively reconcile the Avery of history to the Avery of, of myth. There, there is also, I think, a gulf between what audiences in London are willing to sort of accept, or there's a gulf between expectations in London and the realities of maritime violence at sea. So one thing to bear in mind is many people are not necessarily fully aware of the realities of colonial violence in London where these texts are being produced. Interestingly, 
Fifteen years later, Charles Johnson's 1724 book, A General History of Pirates, shows that the perception of heroic Henry Avery will finally start to turn. Though not before the likes of Bellamy, Blackbeard, or Anne Bonny had followed in his footsteps. In Johnson's later account, Avery's story, although just as speculative, is far less romantic. Avery allegedly comes home and is scammed out of his treasure and dies destitute, a penniless beggar somewhere in Devon. But what Johnson is trying to do is he's trying to take away this kind of romantic myth about Henry Avery and just simply paint him as, here's a pirate and these are the consequences he received. Because initially, the first part of A General History of the Pirate wasn't necessarily intended to romanticize pirates. It was intended to kind of serve almost as a warning. You know, these are the pirates. These are what they did. And this was ultimately their end. And by showing Henry Avery dying as a beggar, it's kind of to show these are kind of the worst case scenario consequences you could have if you manage to survive piracy, but you're still going to end up meeting what you deserve, which is losing absolutely everything. The mystery of Avery's disappearance will never be answered, but will remain a point of fascination for all time. And while Avery's legend grew far beyond the realities of the man, depicted as something of a heroic swashbuckler, today the rosy tint is gone. Henry Avery may have been a heroic outlaw to many during his time, but today he is remembered as a vicious and greedy pirate captain who tortured captives, raped women, and enslaved people. Avery was on the front line of mounting terror in the Red Sea, and his actions and legendary score inspired many seamen to chase after a life of piracy. But his success comes at a cost to those who follow. The rising threat of pirates in the Red Sea and the threat to England's trade mean the authorities will now deal far more harshly with those sailing under the black flag. Next time on Real Pirates. The successes of Thomas Tew and Henry Avery are known far and wide. Sailors everywhere flood into the Indian Ocean and to the pirate haven on Madagascar. Little do they know, it's the beginning of the end. The game is changing and risks start to outweigh reward. But not before the final legend of the Red Sea Pirates steps onto the stage. None other than Captain William Kidd. Find out next week on Real Pirates. Real Pirates is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser, executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes, developed by Julian Boireau for Parcast, produced by McAllister Beckson, written by Luke Coons, sound supervisor Tom Pink, edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer, sound design by Matthias Torres Sole, mixmaster by Cody Reynolds Shaw, music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley. <laughs>